Hey, from New Jersey, it's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. John Trumbull, how are you, good sir? I, I am doing very well, Darren Patterson. Uh, what? That, that what? sounded so weird, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounded so formal, like, uh, it's like, I, like yeah. I just met you now for the first time. Yes, yes. I mean, it has been like, what, geez, a couple months since we've seen each other at this point. Last time, uh, yeah, last time we saw each other was March. That's so weird. It's, it, was life, so, it was a lifetime yeah. ago, man. I mean, because we, we had like a year and a half or so of us getting together literally on a weekly basis. And so we were pretty always assured of seeing each other and hanging out for a couple hours every week, which was fun and now we just talk online for a couple hours every week. Yeah, now I just and talk. Just talking, yeah, it's weird. Just talking in front of our laptops. Yeah, I miss you, man. I miss you, too. I miss us. Yeah. Oh, man. So what have you been up to? You've been uh, catch, um, catching up on some old TV or episodes or any, anything like that? What's, what's going uh, on yeah. in Johnny World? Little of that. Um, you know, since... We're 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 still in you know quarantine pandemic world. I've been like a lot of people, I think, doing watching a lot of streaming stuff. I, I forgot to mention last week. I took your recommendation and I watched uh, the series Hello Ladies. Hey, Stephen. and uh, you were right. That's good stuff. It's, I enjoyed. Yeah. That. yeah, guys, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on uh, was it uh, app Amazon Prime? It's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, it's it's a quick uh, marathon because it's just eight episodes. It was just canceled after season. I know there's also a movie, but that is not on Amazon Prime. I think you have to have like an HBO Go password for that or something. So yeah. I have yet to see the movie. Yeah, if you have like HBO on, de- if you have HBO, or you can watch it on HBO on, on demand or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I really dug the show. It was just like very like like I said before, very curb your enthusiasm cringy you know type of humor but it does have some heart in it too it is it's not all cringe it's like oh cringe and you know some hearts a little bit of emotions yeah yeah i mean it's a similar mix to what you have on the original office the the uk version of the office i mean there's a lot of cringy moments where you're just like oh my god this person is doing the worst possible thing they could do at this moment but there is also uh, a lot of heart too and i i enjoy that that combo because it appeals to both the uh the cynical and the romantic sides of me. There you go. See, and it connects to SNL because Kyle Mooney's in it, and uh, we see uh, Jenny Slate in a couple episodes as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, a few SNL alums. I mean, that's that's the thing about Saturday Night Live is like the 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 tendrils of the show reach so far <laughs> and wide that it's tough to find any sort of comedy project that you can't connect to SNL in some way. Yes, the legs of the octopus stretch far and wide with SNL. And. Uh, also on on streaming, uh, there is a another show that's a personal favorite of mine that uh, also stars another SNL alum, uh, Community. Community is on Netflix now. Hey now, yeah, I've, I've been watching it since it's been on Hulu. Like it's it, uh, but now it's on Netflix and it seems to be like a bigger deal. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know if Netflix is more popular than Hulu, but I would imagine that it probably is. I, I certainly hear a lot more buzz about Netflix than I do about Hulu. But yeah, I started watching the show over again uh, with the pilot, and now I'm well into the second season. 
And it's been really fun to revisit the show because that was like a that was a huge, huge show for me, man. Yeah. Like, I remember that show being like a big deal for a lot of people. It was like one of those shows like, you know, Arrested Development or Mm -hmm. uh, even Party Down, I guess, where it ratings wise, it never did well. But like the the the, you know, pardon the pun, but the community Mm -hmm. around it, the, the fans and the fandom around it was just like huge. Like people were just saying, you need to see this. You need to see the show. This is an amazing show. And it was like a show that just like a huge, huge fan base, but like ratings wise, wasn't, wasn't much. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and I can watching the show again. Yeah. I can totally see why it wasn't a big mainstream success because it is a very quirky esoteric show and it's, it's tough to go in and out. But like when you, it's one of those shows that you love, you really, really love it. And you love it all the harder because it's not especially popular. You feel like you have to make up for all the people who are not watching it. You have to love it harder. Um, <laughs> and, and it's so weird for me to think that it started like over 10 years ago now. I, it, it debuted in, in 2009, I believe. Yeah, like 2008, 2009. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been a while. That is nuts. That's, I mean, it, it feels like it started maybe five years ago and it's only been gone for a couple of years. No, but, this is, yeah, I mean, this is back before uh, Troy Barnes was Childish Gambino, before he became like one of the biggest pop stars like in the world. Yeah, and before Allison Bree did Glow and uh, before um, uh, Gillian, uh, or Gillian Jacobs did uh, Love on Netflix and. I mean, it's uh, everybody's yeah. like moved on to other projects, and and like intellectually, I know it was more than a decade ago because back in 2012, I took my one and only trip out to California to participate in an art show uh, that was community themed, and and I actually got to meet a couple members of the cast. And oh, that was, sweet! That was fun. Yeah, so I got, I got uh, uh, Gillian uh, Gillian Jacobs and uh, Yvette Nicole Brown. They're both very nice. Oh, and I, I met Dan Harmon as well. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was, and uh, apparently I, I just missed Danny Pudi. He he came to see the show on the Sunday that I flew back to New Jersey. So, ah, so you, you know, but what are you going to do? But you uh, hate the yeah, mis- that was a really fun night. Yeah, you hate the Mr. Pudi. Yeah, yeah. Well, some maybe someday I'll get another chance to be meet Mr. Danny Pooty. That would be fun. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, but yeah, so and I, I guess I guess we'll both recommend it. Like you know, guys, rewatch Community. It's it's a still a solid show. The jokes still land. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was one of those shows that was just ahead of its time. Like uh, like we said, Arrested mm-hmm. Development. Uh, I'll throw in Happy Endings there too. They're just shows that they're not for everybody, but for the people who get it, you'll you'll love it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's worth it's worth revisiting or uh, watching for the first time if you missed it the first time around, which I'm sure a lot of people did. Um, yes. But we're not here to talk about uh, community or hello, ladies, as good as those two are. We're we're talking about uh, another project altogether. We're talking about Cracked Up, the Daryl Hammond story, which is a 2018 documentary that is uh, just recently debuted on Netflix, uh, directed by Michelle Esrek. And it's all about uh, Daryl Hammond's traumatic childhood and how he has dealt with that in his life. Uh, yeah, like I mean, as far as uh, Daryl Hammond goes, I didn't know. 
I mean, I don't think I knew anything about like his background, and especially didn't know about all this stuff that uh, happened to him uh, in his childhood. And I didn't know much about like his exit f- or his first exit, I guess you could say, from uh, SNL. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't remember m- hearing much about it when he left. Um, but I think there, I remember seeing like some news articles here and there and stuff. But like, I never really got a definitive like answer as to why he left, really. Yeah, and he was, um, before uh, Kenan Thompson broke this record, he was the longest-serving cast member on SNL. He was on the show from 1995 to 2009, a total of 14 seasons. And, I mean, uh, he, and he actually came back in 2014 after uh, Don Pardo, the announcer Don Pardo, passed away, and he took over the announcements at the beginning of the, of the show. And he, he's occasionally made cameos as or, or reviving some of his old characters like Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, I mean, as far as his, when he was on the show originally, what, like when his time on the show, like I always knew he was a good performer. I knew he was a good impressionist, but I don't know. I, maybe part of me kind of took him for granted, I guess. Like I never really like focused too much on him, but yeah, but like, uh, which is why like when I rewatched the documentary, it really kind of made me appreciate him all the more, especially when they listed all the, or they showed all the impressions he did. Like, I mean, he did Clinton, he did Sean Connery, he did the Ted Koppel, he did yeah. like uh, Leno, he did yeah. Dick Cheney, he had the Phil Donahue, like spot on, Chris Matthews yeah. and Jesse Jackson and Trump and Philbin and you know, Rich, uh, Richard Dreyfus. He had like, he did all those things and like a lot of them were just like spot on impressions. And like, I don't think I appreciated yeah. it like at the time, like I should have. He- he was just a machine, and I think he is rather underappreciated in the in the whole context of the show. I think because he was he was one of those people who tended to just kind of vanish into his roles a lot. Uh, there's an early scene in this documentary where he's being he's at the Saturday Night Live studios and he's being made up as Trump. Um, and the, he says the makeup artist at SNL told him that he has a very sort of bland or anonymous face. So he can, he can look like almost anybody. Yeah. And then they show a montage and he, and he, he looks like Bill Clinton somehow. He looks like Donald Trump somehow. He looks like Chris Matthews somehow, but it's not real extensive makeup. I don't think he ever did much in the way of like fake noses and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, his face, his face is kind of a, you know, blank slate. I don't want to say blank slate, but I'll say blank slate <laughs> where, yeah, he, like you don't need much. you like for Clinton, you just like kind of maybe do something with the nose and put on a wig mm-hmm. and, Oh, it's Clinton. Oh, Trump just yeah. his face orange and put the ridiculous hair on him. Now he's Trump. It's, it, it is weird how he's able to like shape, shape shift like that, uh, both physically and uh, vocally. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets this documentary. It's interesting. I mean, it's mostly about, uh, what he was going through off stage. But it, there is a bit in there about how his how he developed his talent for impressions and his his system for it, and and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, so, I mean, but but it's amazing. I, I was uh, <laughs> and and Daryl Hammond. He's also a stand up comedian. So I was also amused early in the documentary. We see him being introduced at uh, Caroline's, which is one of the big comedy clubs in New York City. And he's being introduced by uh, Joe List. Oh, yeah, I love I, when I saw that. I was like, "Hey, Joe List! I love Joe List. He's hilarious." Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was it was something, and it's and yeah, it's it, it's something else. Um, 
And uh, Hammond, he also wrote a book about his uh, his childhood traumas called God, If You're Not Up There, I'm Fucked. Uh, that came out in 2011. And uh, that was successful enough. He adapted it into a one-man play in 2015, uh, starring himself. And he was he was hoping to bring, uh, according to his Wikipedia page, he was hoping to bring it to Broadway. But uh, Hammond would prefer that somebody else, particularly Jim Carrey or Kevin Spacey, play him instead, as it was so stressful. He had to be hospitalized twice during the Los Angeles run. So, oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. there's some interesting stuff on Daryl Hammond's Wikipedia page, man. Yeah, guys, just right off the top, this this is probably going to be a little one of our one of our heavier episodes, just because, like in the doc, there's some there's some heavy, heavy, heavy stuff in here. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, it, it opens up with uh, Daryl, the, the framing device for the movie, it's uh, Daryl Hammond returning to his childhood home in Florida, um, and you, you find out the full context of this over the course of the movie, but uh, I mean, it, it hits you with some things early on, it's got, uh, we find out he was hospitalized at age six uh, with internal bleeding, Um and his mother was like, oh, yeah, he had an accident on his bike. And I don't know how he did it. Uh, yeah, yeah th- that's how we start this thing. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of it shifts back between his his memories of, of his childhood, and it gives you a lot of his background. And it, it also ha- it talks about him turning all this stuff into his stage show, and he's sort of workshopping his stage show. And he's also, like, touring behind the book. And he's a busy guy in this. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it kind of cuts in between a few things, this doc. Like, it starts off, uh, like you said, John, like, it starts off with his, you know, childhood home in Florida, but then it kind of cuts to him touring with the book, and then it cuts to him workshopping the uh, the one-man play in La Jolla, at the La Jolla Playhouse in California. And yeah. uh, so that's, that's kind of the structure of this doc. It just kind of hops from, you know, in between these three things mainly in order to tell this big story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it talks to like a few people who uh, knew Daryl Hammond back in the day, back in his childhood. Uh, we've got uh, a childhood friend of his by the name of Larry, uh, who, who talks with him. And, and we, we see him uh, early in the movie and then late in the movie as well. Um, we, we find out about Daryl Hammond's childhood. He was, he was a baseball player. His dad was like the local baseball coach. Uh, his, his father was Max Hammond, uh, who was a Korean War veteran who had, who came back. He obviously had PTSD or what they would have called shell shock back then. And he would he would like wake up screaming at night from stuff he'd seen in the war. And he had rage issues. And all this did a number on Daryl Hammond. And Daryl Hammond said he ended up he had a drinking problem by the time he was 17. Right, they talk about that. He also talk about he also talks about like how when he was a kid he was very depressed and he had like he was always filled with dread and anxiety. Uh, there were times where he was just sitting on the railroad tracks, just kind of staring at the railroad tracks, and his mom saw him sitting there, but he, she never went out to get him off the railroad tracks. He would just be sitting there, and she would just like look at him. So there's yeah. a lot of so there's a lot of darkness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um... And then um, as he, 
like as this develops, he, he said like from childhood on, he started doing impressions and he would do impressions of cartoon characters like Popeye and Porky Pig. And here's something I found really fascinating was he, he would assign colors to each character. Like Popeye was blue and Porky Pig was yellow. And I actually went on the website for the, uh, for the movie and, and, uh, there are like there are some links to that. And I found a Psychology Today article, and this is actually apparently a uh, a form of synesthesia. Which ha- have you heard of synesthesia, Darren? Uh, I no, I have not. This is uh, this is all new to me. Please tell me more. Okay, it's this. I'm probably not going to explain this real well, but I am not a mental health professional, so please forgive me for just my layman's <laughs> understanding of this. But synesthesia is like when you associate. Uh, like certain sense things with other sense things, like like you taste sounds or you 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 see uh, feelings, and and so his association of various voices with various colors that's a form of synesthesia. Oh, interesting. Yeah, right, well, I mean that makes a lot of sense because uh, well, as we learn also at this point, like he assigns different voices, the different colors, but he never mm-hmm. uses the color red, which is something that comes in later in the play. And we, you'll, you find that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like literally every, apparently every voice or every personality he would channel would be a different color. Uh, Bill Clinton was orange. Dick Cheney was light blue. And uh, his favorite uh, Al Sharpton was mauve. Oh and, Yeah. <laughs> And and you would think this this guy doing like well over a hundred impressions, he would assign red. So I mean, it's very telling that he never assigned red to anybody for any reason, apparently. Yeah, dude, that's that's another thing. Like when he did his Al Sharpton, I forgot he did an Al Sharpton, and he did a really good Al Sharpton impression too. I was pretty shocked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I did a great Jesse Jackson, and I mean when they had that montage early on, you're just like, oh yeah, he did this person and this person and this person. And they were all great. Yeah. Like and- they actually, he actually did this. They showed this one impression he did when he was doing uh standup and uh, at the old mm-hmm. rascals and it showed him yeah. doing it. Yeah. The, he did an Eddie Murphy impression and it was pretty damn spot on. I was like, how come I don't remember him ever doing this in SNL? Like how come he never did this at the damn, it was a really good Eddie Murphy impression. Yeah. I mean, I think, Probably the only reason he didn't do that on SNL was it would take a lot of work to make him look anything approximating Eddie Murphy, you know? Oh, and, yeah, because you don't want the... Yeah. And also, you got to be really careful when you're having a white cast member imitate a, a black uh, celebrity. Oh, you do. Like, uh, I'm sure yeah. Jimmy Fallon's still like, oh, I shouldn't have done that Chris Rock impression. Oh, yeah, he did. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, Dude, it is... Watch... I, I defy you to watch it now. It is, it is cringy beyond cringy. Yeah, but and it, it really just shows how our standards on, on that sort of thing have have changed over the years. Because I remember, like back in the eighties, Billy Crystal would do like Sammy Davis Jr. and it was like his makeup job. Yeah, I, I don't know. Was, would you blackface? I I don't well, know. I mean, he's he's not doing it to to make fun of Sammy Davis Jr. Really, but. Yeah, I remember seeing, hearing about that where, because Billy Crystal did a really good Sammy Davis Jr. impression, and he did a really good mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali impression, too. And, yes, like, yeah. 
Yeah, and like and like him and Muhammad Ali actually were good friends, and like Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. loved the depression. It it is a weird thing because he's not doing it to mock these people. He actually has great reverence, and he really he's yeah. really like he really loves these people. So I don't know, man. It's it's a, it's it's a it's a it's a tight rope. Yeah, I mean, it's I I I don't know. I I don't feel comfortable saying like, oh, this is where the line is, hmm. but. Yeah, but if you know, would would you have a white cast member imitate a black celebrity today? Probably not. I mean, Probably. maybe if you could do something where it's like they're they with, with no makeup on, and they'll be like, "Oh, that's the the white cousin or the of such and such mm-hmm. and so and so." Like, "Oh, that's Eddie Murphy's you know white cousin that they don't talk about," and he just do, do the does the impression, <laughs> but as a white guy or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you you. You could do something like that, and that could become its own character. Or, sure, yeah, yeah, that that could definitely work. I mean, even even when he did like his, when Daryl Hammond did his Al Sharpton and his Jesse Jackson, as I recall, they were they were mostly like just tan, you know. Yeah, it was it was weird because like it it was you could tell like when Hammond did the uh, Jesse Jackson, like they they knew they didn't want to go full blackface, but they wanted to do something to show that he was black, so. He kind of had like a, it was like a light tan on him, yeah. and I, I don't know if it really worked, but like it sounded like mm-hmm. Jesse enough to be like, all right, I'll I'll go along with it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you you can obviously tell that those were impressions he probably just developed for the radio or for his stand up act, where of course the makeup is not a factor. So, right, exactly. It's fine because it's just a vocal impression, but on something with like Saturday Night Live, there's now that expectation that. You not only do them vocally, you you have to look like them as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, radio is a theater of the mind, as they say. Yes, yes, yes. That it is theater of the mind. Yes, that's a that's a wonderful way to put it. Hey, uh, why are you talking like that? You sound like a Irish man. I don't. I don't know. I didn't go for I'm just dancing around the subject matter of this movie because it's, it's <laughs> I mean, it's hardcore. It's, it's harrowing. It's a harrowing watch guys. Um, it is. It is. Uh, so, I mean, I guess we could talk about how he didn't have his first diagnosis until he was 27. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he was diagnosed as manic depressive and schizophrenic, which um, he, he found out, over time, this was not the case, uh, but he was just repressing his childhood trauma so much that that was what people thought it was. And he went to like 39 doctors and it took that long for him to get a, a proper diagnosis. And that's, God, that's nuts. And yeah, it's, uh, it's rough. And uh, I mean, even to make it rougher, there was a point where he was like started, he was like became a cutter where he was cutting himself. Too. Yes. Yeah, we find out over the course of the movie he he is he, he cut himself. He's got like forty nine separate uh, injuries or scar scarification on on his body, and it's and he was dealing with so much of this stuff while he was at SNL. He he auditioned for SNL when he was like thirty nine years old, and he's on lithium at the time. Yeah, and even that's kind of surprised me too. Like thirty nine, that is. I, cause like usually SNL goes for the young hipper folks. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, honest, I mean, from what I understand, like by the time you hit your mid thirties, it's like, 
it's a done deal. It's over. Like, so the fact that he got on audition at 39 and he, and he got on is like, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly much more the exception than the rule because I, I think partly because just to keep up with the grueling schedule of SNL, you have to be a fairly young person in your twenties or thirties. So if like you're getting into your forties, you have to be really, really good to do that. And it's, you know, and it's a tough schedule. You're, you're staying up like literally all night, uh, on the night they're writing on, on Tuesdays and you're, you're up of, of course, really late on, on a Saturday. And then you're, you're probably going to the after party after the show. So that's probably mostly an, an all night affair too. It's yeah. yeah uh, it's, it, it's a grind. Yeah. Maybe we should have been a little easier when uh, Leslie Jones was on the show. Now, now, now that we, we, I think about it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. She she was just probably cranky from lack of sleep. Right. Our apologies, Leslie Jones. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that really impressed uh, uh, Steve Higgins, uh, SNL writer and producer, I believe he's a producer, um, and Lorne Michaels when they saw Daryl Hammond at the Comedy Cellar was his Eddie Murphy impression. And they, they show a clip of it and you're like, yeah, that's a really good Eddie Murphy impression. Right, it's it's solid. It is uh, even wise. So I was like, "Whoa, that is that is damn good." Yeah, and they, they show um, an interview, uh, a clip of an Chris Matthews uh, interviewing Daryl Hammond, and he's like, "How do you know that? Like, I'm constantly out of breath. Like, you you nailed this thing about me, and you can just tell that Chris Matthews really really likes the impression, and he's flattered by it. So, I mean, that's really cool. Yeah, no, I mean, as as far as impressions go, I think the two that probably took off more than than most for him was the uh i mean the bill clinton pretty much like launched mm-hmm. him into the stratosphere like he was doing impressions in front of bill clinton at like events and meetings and whatnot mm-hmm. and, um, yeah the white horse house uh correspondence dinner he's and he's doing clinton next to clinton <laughs> and he has he has some hilarious stories about uh, everybody wants him to do his Bill Clinton voice. And he, and he came onto the show at just the right time because he came onto the show in 95. And it was right when, you know, that's like prime Clinton years. And that's, and the, the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal hadn't broken yet. So, I mean, Daryl Hammond was there for all of that. So, what a gift to an impressionist. Yeah. With I mean, all that, you know? It's pretty fantastic. Like, uh, and also the, um, the Sean Connery impression. I think that he's, I don't know which one he's most known for. I would say either one of those two, definitely. But the Sean Connery, like, I, to this day, people, you know, say, you know, and anal bum covers and, and from all that, mm-hmm. from all those Jeopardy sketches and whatnot, they still get the it. Whole semen. Yes. <laughs> the penis yeah. might you. Yes. <laughs> um, and and he, he talked a little about how that arose. He was just like sitting in his office at SNL. He was working on a Sean Connery impression. And across the hall was. Will Ferrell working on his Alec uh, Trebek, Alex Trebek impression for for Celebrity Jeopardy, and he just comes up to to Will Ferrell's door and he's like, "Not a fan of the ladies, are you, Trebek?" And, <laughs> and he just talks about how it really makes no rational sense. Like, you know, one, why is Sean Connery such a jerk and so stupid? And yeah. why is Sean Connery hate Alex Trebek so much? Yeah. Um, He's constantly makes, hazing him. Yeah, it makes no real sense, but damn, is it funny. And Fantastic. It, it was what that sketch needed. Oh, it's a thing of beauty. Chef kisses. 
Yeah, and and he uh, Daryl Hammond. They also show like a clip of him in a stand up act, and he was talking about as like a lot of stand ups do. He he did a lot of college dates, and he tells a story about there was like this one co-ed who followed him out to his car and she was like, I will show you my breasts if you do your Bill Clinton voice. Oh my. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> that's such a oh, nutty story. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know what to say to that. Yeah, I, oof, I maybe maybe we should start working on our Bill Clinton impressions. I don't know. I th- I think maybe that that one particular uh, college student, she maybe she was working through some stuff. I don't know. <laughs> like, oh, shit, shit issues. Well, I don't know. That's not a that's not an everyday thing. <laughs> All Clinton to me. Yeah. But, oh boy. But, but what a great story that is. That's that's a pretty hilarious story. Um. But. Uh, there, there was a there was a telling moment uh, where you see Daryl Hammond and he's talking to Whoopi Goldberg, and I think this is like shortly after he guest starred on The View to promote his book. And he says to Whoopi Goldberg, "Well, you overcame shit too." And Whoopi Goldberg just says, "What choice do we have?" Yeah, and yeah. Like that, that. that was such an affecting. I mean, it's the more you find out about like so many comedians or some, so many people who went into comedy professionally is that they, a lot of them, I'm not going to say all of them, but a lot of them had like these really intense traumas in their life or a lot are really hard things that they had to overcome. And it, it feels like a lot of the really, really great comedians, they had to develop these really great senses of humor to overcome and get past all of that, you know? Right. I mean, I know it's like a cliche to say, oh, you know, tears of a clown and through every mm-hmm. comedian or somebody in comedy, there's some like deep, dark, you know, trauma or just some some dysfunction in them that they're trying to get trying to get over. And I mean, that is it, it is true. And it's not. Um, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of time. Yeah. But like, I guess for a lot of people, they figure in a best way to combat the darkness that they have in them is with, you know, laughter, the light. So like that's where they try to, you know, maybe get people to laugh at them and, you know, and hope that'll alleviate the pain they feel somehow. And I, I guess it does. It does a little bit at some point, but then I don't. Yeah, it's it. I don't know. I, I don't. Know. I, I would say maybe just like a, it's like that's like a short term uh, fix and just you know just go see a doctor in the long run. Just go see a <laughs> well, I'll I mean, doctor. Yeah. You know that's that's good too. I I don't think. Uh... Yeah, I don't think necessarily comedy and audience laughter will necessarily fill the hole inside of you. And 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 I don't mean to say that every comedian is like severely traumatized by something, but it seems like a lot of the really big ones. Yeah, that is a thing. That you, is a thing. You, and I you play the odds. Yeah, and I and I also I unfortunately I've known a lot of comedians who suffer from depression. You know, and. Yeah, I, I'll include myself in that. I I haven't had to overcome anything like like Daryl Hammond has in his life, but my God, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like another thing he uh, wouldn't talk about where when he's on SNL, there's a, a Mother's Day special. They want to do like a Mother's Day show, and right. Daryl's like, "Yeah, I'm not inviting my mother up here because like they want to have a thing where the, the thing that they always kind of do now where they have the mothers." of all the cast members come up and they do something on, mm-hmm. on the show. 
Daryl, yeah, Daryl, of course, yeah. like, I don't want to do that at all. I'm not doing, she's not coming here. So they yeah. said, oh, well, maybe you could do something where you dress up as your mother. Maybe that would be funny. So Daryl yeah. got dressed up as his mother. He looked at himself in the mirror. And when he looked at himself in the mirror, he said that he saw his his mother looking back at him. And that, yeah. that caused him to throw up and basically have a heart attack like he like they say he says his pulse was like over 200 like his body just kind of went into this this shock yeah yeah and it and it really was i think it's fair to say that was like some sort of ptsd kicking in was that you know that was just seeing him looking enough like his own mother that was the trigger and uh and they say that lauren uh sent daryl hammond to hazelton which is a uh uh, like a, a drug recovery facility. And Lauren apparently takes this sort of stuff very, very seriously because, I mean, he's, they've unfortunately lost a few cast members on SNL. They've lost John Belushi and Chris Farley through drug abuse. And so I think Lauren is very attuned to the signs and the triggers and, and that, and he, he wants to prevent that sort of thing from happening to anybody else in his employ. And, you know, kudos right. to Lauren yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think we went into like the the stuff that Daryl was like, you know, you know, drugs and alcohol. He was in, really abusing. Uh, I mean, I know at, at one point in the doc they talk about he was like drank like a basically like, like like a trash can full of absence or something like that. Like well, I had a huge amount of absence. He was on. Yeah, yeah. That's nuts. I mean, you don't you don't really hear about people drinking absinthe anymore. Like that's that's only they drank around the turn of the century. Like the you know the the, the turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century. That was the thing. Yeah, that's something like Edgar Allan Poe would get drunk on, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that's something like you you did with like you know Pablo Picasso or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, like smoking like, mercury or something. Yeah, and like you know, when you, you got cocaine at the corner drugstore or something. Yeah, that's that's old timey. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he Daryl Hammond he talks about how he once left an SNL rehearsal in a straitjacket, uh, and that they, they actually at one point they show a clip of Daryl Hammond he's performing in character on SNL, and he's this character has his sleeves rolled up, and they show they zoom in on the footage, and you can see the scars on his arm from his cutting. Oh, right. Like, I think he was uh, Mark Schott, I think, the, the owner of the Reds. And, yeah, you see, it is visible he has some, like, cuts on his arm. It's, it's pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's something else, man. Um, but there's also, like, this weird sort of duality thing. You would think that somebody who's dealing with this much in his life, he couldn't get it together to perform for the show. But he would be at his best or his most relaxed when he was performing for this live television program. And, and Lauren said uh, in sports, uh, Daryl uh, uh, is what we call a big game player. You know, like that's when, that's when you rally. That's when you, you really come together and you perform at your best. Right. Cause that, yeah. Cause like a lot of people, they, like you said, they perform at their best when they're on the razor's edge where it's like mm-hmm. do or die. Some people, Fall, some people fail, some people rise to the occasion under those circumstances. And Daryl, fortunately, it was enough. It was good enough to rise to those occasions. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he talks about, uh, yeah, he left SNL in 2009 
And then that suicide attempt you talked about a minute ago, that was in the fall of 2010. He cut himself and he drank a vat of absinthe in a suicide attempt. And he, he went to another facility and the, like the doctor's running through everything he's been through is like five detoxes, nine different psychiatric facilities. He'd been diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder and I believe multiple personalities and schizophrenia and stuff. But they eventually realized that this is this was not the cause of it. These were like just symptoms of what he had really gone through or, or the results of what he'd really gone through. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we could, do you want to start talking about like the, the big crescendo, like what, what was revealed about him and his mom? Cause like, that is something yeah. I, I noticed where like in the beginning of the documentary, they talked about his dad, but they never talked about his mom. And then yeah. like, as, it, as it goes on, like they, they just drop hints about, his mom, but they never talk about his mom and up until yeah, like they, they kind of dance around this. And there's, there's a quote in the psychology today article that I, I find very telling. Um, this is, uh, it says when people are behaving in apparently self-destructive ways, it's time to stop asking what's wrong with them and time to start asking what happened to them. So like apparently the thing that really motivated this movie was one of Hammond's doctors said, I don't want you to say mental illness. I want you to say mental injury, because this was a reaction to the injuries, the mental injuries he got in his childhood. Mm. Yeah, this and, is, uh, oof, this is, yeah, this is, this is something else. Yeah. And I mean, this all came back to his, his childhood trauma. Uh, and he, he, for decades, Hammond was self-medicating with alcohol and drugs and he he'd misremembered or blocked out so much of his childhood trauma because like his brain just could not deal with it any other way. He said he he would remembered like he was having his hands slammed in doors, and this was something his mother had done to him. But he thought he had done it to himself. Right, like his mom. It turned out his mom physically abused him, uh, slammed his mm -hmm. hands in doors. Like you said, uh, she hit him with a hammer at one point, which is which explains the uh, internal bleeding at one point. And mm -hmm. she, she was just like doing all these horrible things to him. Um, I mean, yeah. I guess that's, that's one thing I noticed in the, in the doc. They never really explained like why she did that. I'm just assuming she had a mental illness um, of her own, but I guess she never got it diagnosed. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, who knows? Because this this was this was an era where we just knew so little about it. I, I'm looking it up. I mean, Daryl Hammond. He was born in 1955. So this would this would have been in the like the late fifties, early sixties that he was dealing with all this stuff, and we we just didn't have the knowledge and the uh, about all this stuff then that we had that we have today. And um, there was this one doctor, Doctor K, who he realized like the key was uh, Daryl Hammond's aversion to red in his characters. He associated color with every one of his characters except for the color red. And he was like, what, you know, where's this aversion coming from? And he, and Daryl Hammond had like a memory of red in a square. And they figured out that was like red coming through a window. And there was a hibiscus bush outside of Daryl Hammond's window. And he, I, I think, associated that with his childhood and his childhood injuries. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
All right, so so basically, what happened is like he remember what. Like, well, uh, one thing that the doctor notices that he has like a um, Dara has like a like a cut on his tongue that yeah. he got from uh, from years ago, and like Daryl's like, yeah, I don't remember, I don't know where that came from or where that happened, and um, so when they mentioned the hibiscus in the window, that's when like things start to click in his mind and he starts to remember this you know horrible event where his his mom stabbed him in the tongue with a steak knife. And yeah, a serrated steak knife. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it is like, what the fuck? Like, I can't even like wrap my mind or like, why would you like, I don't yeah. Anyway, yeah. And it was like one of those things where I think like after, um, like, I think like after Daryl's dad found out, like he sent Daryl to kind of live with his grandparents. And then like the mom went away for a little bit, but then she came back. Or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you said before, like you know, because they grew up in um, you know the fifties and sixties, where like you didn't talk about things like this. You didn't talk about what was all the trouble you were having in your life. You just you know, no one want, no one wants to hear the truth. The only thing people want to hear was like everything's fine, everything's great, and you just kind of you know sugar. You just kind of gave people like this rosy Americana v- version of your life, and like yeah, stuff yeah. Like, this we just got kind of shoved under the rug as like a dirty secret and like no one ever talked. Yeah. About and, it. and the, the Hammonds, they were, they were perceived as these, you know, nice, great pillars of the community. They went to church twice a week. Uh, Daryl Hammond's dad, Max, he was like the coach of the baseball team. I mean, you would not think that this was going on looking at it from the outside. And that just, you know, in a way that makes it all the worse. And, and Daryl Hammond, he also talked about how, you were ex- like the, the person was doing this horrible thing to you that's causing this trauma, and it's also you are expected not to tell. Yeah, you and know, that, it's yeah. taken as a given. Like, oh, you're you're not going to tell anybody about this. Yeah, and then like that, that kind of puts more pressure on you, thinking, oh, did maybe like I have to keep it a secret? Do I have to keep it a secret because mm-hmm. I did something wrong? Is it me? That's my fault. And then that's when like you're you know, like maybe self-loathing works gets in and you just feel like you're the cause of all this, even though, you know, you're, you're absolutely not. And, you know, the people who are supposed to be your protectors are actually the one inflicting damage on you thinking that, well, they're my protectors. So they're inflicting, they're inflicting this hurt on me because obviously I did something wrong. It must've been something I did. And which is of course not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this, this doc, it really helped me understand where like the, the self-harm impulse comes from. I never quite, quite understood that before. I thought it was like some sort of self-hatred thing, but the way Daryl Hammond, he explained it, he said that cutting yourself, it's a more precise trauma than, than what's in your head. It's like, oh, I, I can't, I don't have the tools to deal with what's going on inside my head, but if I cut my arm... That gives me a concrete problem to solve. I am bleeding. I now I now have to take care of that. And mm. yeah, I, I never thought of it that way either. I mean, it's. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of. I mean, I mean, that's one thing about this uh, documentary is like you definitely maybe get some answers to things you never thought about. Like you know, like why do people cut themselves? Why do people, you know, self medicate with you know? Well, maybe when, when people self medicate with like drugs and drinking, like because they're trying mm-hmm. to you know, suppress something inside of them that they don't know how to fix. So, I mean, yeah. for hearing Daryl's, like, first-hand accounts and all these things, it really 
kind of enlightening. Yeah, there was something my dad uh, said to me once, and my dad had done has done a lot of um, uh, my, my my stepfather was an Episcopalian minister, and he so he did a lot of counseling and that sort of thing. And he said uh, one time he was like, you know, people don't drink in order to feel good; they drink so that they don't have to feel bad. You know, so you're you're just kind of numbing yourself to the pain, like when when you're an alcoholic, that is. Um, yeah. Fair enough. And I, I found that very insightful, and that always stuck with me ever since. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. That is yeah. that's very insightful. Um, but, I mean, I think it it's, it's, was really helpful for Daryl Hammond once he finally understood that all of this came from his childhood trauma, and once he was able to, once he was able to bring that to the surface and deal with it more, and he's... And we see him in the later scenes of the documentary. He's doing things like he's doing yoga and meditating and just kind of rewiring his brain. He says he's sleeping better. And uh, and one woman, uh, after he wrote his book about all his experiences, one woman told him that uh, his book saved her life. Yeah, and that's fantastic. That's like, uh, I mean, he, he came out of it and he's able to touch other people and help them with the stuff they were going through, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. And, uh, you yeah. I mean, also, uh, I mean, the doc also mentions that um, I get his mom, uh, Daryl's mom, got uh, lung cancer in '05 and passed away. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't think they ever had a chance to really kind of, I don't say hash it out, but like, they never. I guess he never got that closure because like, I think he went to see her, but she was still, I guess, maybe in that, like, mentally, just maybe not fair, or just you know, she still well, suffered yeah, from oh, illness. Yeah, still but, denial about what happened uh he's he's talks about like he he went to see her and she was at the end or close to it and she said something like oh you were always my little buddy so she's like she was like obviously deep in denial about what happened or what she did to her son and i mean i don't know what to say to that i mean like any any closure he was going to get he had to get from within himself, because he wasn't going to get it from his mom, obviously. And right. we, we see towards the end of the movie, his uh, his childhood friend, Larry, uh, who was interviewed for the doc. We, we see him talking with Daryl and he's like, I had no idea this was going on. And he and he's he's trying to clear the air with Daryl because he feels like some some guilt and I guess maybe even some responsibility because he had no idea that his friend was having such a horrible time of it. And he, he went to see Daryl's parents after the, the news of this broke in like a newspaper article and the response he got from them, he, it convinced him that it absolutely had happened. Yeah. I mean, that is weird when you see that, like when you're, you you see somebody like you've known your, your whole life for years and then you see like another side of them. Like you see mm-hmm. that, like, Whoa, who are you? Like you, cause you know, that old uh, adage, you know, you think you know somebody, but like that yeah. is a weird thing when you see like the other side of a person that maybe that person's always hidden from you or like they just know that like, oh, if they know this about me, then they'll see me in a whole different light and maybe not accept me type of thing. Right, but, uh, right. Yeah. And and that's and that's the like the sort of insidious mind games you can you can play with yourself. You know, if, oh, if I talk about this, then nobody will understand or nobody will. Yeah, they won't like me anymore. Or they won't understand or yeah, whatever. I mean, it's just. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when Larry and da- and uh, Daryl talk, like they kind of like he I guess it's that there's that thing where you feel like, oh, like oh, this was going on underneath my nose the whole time. And like I had no idea. And now you 
you had to go through all that pain and trauma by yourself. And I, I wish I had known mm-hmm. so I could have helped you with that or I wish I had, there was something I could have done. And like, so yeah, yeah now you have some guilt over not doing anything. Yeah. And, and Daryl Hammond is very forgiving as a friend. Cause like his, his friend, Larry, apparently he was living under the same roof as them a lot of time, or maybe he spent a lot of nights at the, at the Hammond house. I don't know. And he, and Larry's like, how did I not see any signs of this? And Daryl Hammond's like, well, they weren't going to do this stuff in front of you. You know, this was, this was like their deep, dark secret. This was, and yeah. so he was very forgiving of his friend. He's not like Daryl Hammond wasn't like, where the hell were you or anything like that? He's just like, no, this is, this is how it works. This is how it was. And, and you can see Larry, who I presume had a much more, I don't want to say normal, but a, a more standard or traditional childhood, I guess. Stable maybe. Yeah. A more, he was, he was brought up in a more stable environment, apparently. You know, he's just he's struggling to understand this because it's just so outside of his experience. And it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times when we see like I guess when we we think we know like a bad person or somebody who's inflicting harm on others, like based mm-hmm. on like what we've seen in the movies and the TV, you know, like you you see like a yeah. movie where it's like, a you know, the abusive husband is like, you know, holding a bottle of scotch and like his neckties askew and his shirt's half out. It's right. like, woman, oh, blah, 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 Like, you know that's, oh, that's the bad guy. But, like, I mean, in real life, it's not that, a lot of times it's not that obvious. A lot of times it's, like, somebody who goes to church and, like, you know, takes, you know, uh, you know, coaches Little League and does, like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. is, like, a pillar of society and then behind closed doors they're doing God knows what. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the word I keep coming back to on this is is just harrowing. I mean, it's, it it is it is a harrowing watch just hearing about all this stuff and all the the crap that Daryl Hammond has dealt with and attempted to overcome in his life. Yeah, but I mean at the and I mean it is harrowing, but it's also uplifting like towards the end where we see him mm-hmm. like slowly kinda coming to grips with it and kind of rebuilding himself and dealing with the trauma and kind of mm-hmm. working his way through it, like with the doctors and yoga and giving speeches and talking to other people. Yeah and um and and whatnot and uh yeah it, it is like oh like he's, this is him building himself up this is the this is a really yeah. hard work right now and then at the very end we see him back uh going back to his childhood home in florida and he's he's just reminiscing and you see him walking around on the inside and he's like yeah this is the room where this happened and and all that but he comes out of it and he says i i actually feel empowered by this it's like going back to all his childhood memories, he'd processed this enough that it wasn't really painful for him anymore. He was, he said like, I'm hobbled. I have a limp. I have these frailties, but, I, but I won in the long run. He, because he got past this and he's, he, he says, ultimately this is just a house. Right. And that's, and I mean, he, that's probably the best way to end it. Like, a, uh, yeah, because it's like, yeah. Like, cause like what you, when he, like you said, like it's, he went back to the place where he went through this, you know, horrible trauma that kind of caused that he wasn't able to get over for like 40 years or like, you know, he yeah. lived, in, lived in fear for like 40, 50 years. And like now coming back to that the place, you know, the scene of the crime and him being not shaken by it or triggered by it. And just, yeah. you know, just like, Oh, this is just a house. And that's, that's yeah. what happened. And I'm okay. Yeah. And I mean, even that's pretty amazing. Um, 
I don't know. You said you'd seen this documentary before, uh, right, Karen? Uh, no, no. This is my first time watching it. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Because I was, you know, as I as I watched this, I was expecting it to be kind of rough going, but I think it was even rougher than I was expecting. It's, it, it's it just, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I'll admit this one. This isn't really a lighthearted, a lighthearted romp. I guess you could say. Yeah. But I mean, it is. You know, it's like a very thought provoking, important documentary, and it is. It does have like a light, light ending, I guess, or, or a uplifting mm-hmm. ending at the end. So that, I mean, there is that. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's worth watching if you're interested in mental health, if you're interested in like where comedy comes from, and if you're interested in how those two things coincide. I think, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. But you know, just fair warning, it's not an easy watch. Right. Like if you're if you're easily. Uh, I guess triggered, or you're easily kind of set off by certain topics and um, and things like that. I would maybe caution against, or just just watch it with a careful eye. Yeah, you know, and in fact, uh, thinking about it, I think when I write up the description for this episode, we should we should put a warning uh, in our description for this episode, just as just to give a heads up for anybody who might be dealing with this sort of thing, and. Uh, or has dealt with this sort of thing in the past. That might be a good thing to do. I will co-sign on that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but, uh, you know, I I went to uh, the website for the movie. It's uh, called, uh, it's crackedupmovie.com. And there's actually a uh, resource center section on that website where if you are dealing with any kind of abuse or uh, any sort of uh, childhood trauma uh there are links to resources you can do that uh there's a link to uh, what's called an ace study which is the adverse childhood experiences study and you can and it links 10 types of childhood trauma with the adult onset of chronic disease mental illness and violence so if that's something that uh, you're dealing with or something that you think you can find helpful uh yeah please go there and check that out and uh investigate what sort of help is available out there because there is help available out there yes please like if you feel like you need help or you need someone to talk to please just get the help you need and and uh get get well and get yourself better like don't uh you don't have to live in the pain yeah yeah and i mean it's you know i i know how overwhelming like severe depression can be i mean i again i didn't deal i haven't dealt with depression to the degree that daryl hammond has i mean <laughs> Yeah. There's really your any, any problems that you might have in your life seem very piddling in comparison. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I've been kind of bummed out a little bit here and there, but like I, I mean, compared to what I saw in this doc, I was like, oh, I was I was downright jolly. But you know what? It's it's all relative, and it's all you know. Even if your pain's not as severe as this pain, it is still valid. And you know, if you need help dealing with that, then don't feel ashamed about that. So absolutely. Yeah. So, but man, this, this episode wasn't this was, funny at all. Yeah, yeah, this was something, and you know, yeah, I'm sorry this wasn't a uh, all that funny of an episode, but uh, yeah, yeah, where the laughs, man? Yeah, it wasn't all that funny of a documentary. So, Jesus H. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I think we were talking about before we started recording. I, I think we we need to do something a little lighter next week. You don't say. Yeah, yeah. I think we need a little relief from this. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think we were talking about, we were thinking about maybe putting out a poll to the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't quite settle on any one thing we're going to do. So I think we're going to come up with uh, anywhere from two to four uh, possibilities of what we're going to talk about next week. And we're going to throw that up on the Twitter account uh, at SNL Nerds Show. And you can vote on what you most want to hear. Yes. The, the, the future is yours. Democracy now. Our, yes. Our fate is in your hands. Yes. That is what we are going to do. That's right. Get the power back to the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, all we know for sure right now is it's it's just going to be something lighter and funnier and goofier than this one. Cause yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think we've earned a little light and funny and goofy. Uh, yeah, like the, the world is already uh, a, a dumpster fire full of manure. So let's maybe have a do something where we have a little levity in uh, this world of, of ours today. The world's a dumpster fire of manure? How so? I haven't heard anything about this. Uh... You know what? Oh, wait, I, I'm oh, not. Look, a copy of the New York Times is in. And oh my god! Oh, I'm so. I, oh my god! I'm sorry. Wow. I had to find out this way, man. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you. Can... <laughs> <laughs> you can. You can find me at Darren Credible at D A R I N Credible. <laughs> yes, and you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram, which I hardly ever use, at Trumbull Comic. Uh, that's at T R U M B U L L, and then the word comic. And as I said before, you can follow the show page at SNL Nerds Show on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's it. Like, I was trying to see if there's anything on. Twitter that people tweeted us, but I don't, I don't see much. Uh, yeah, I don't think we got... Uh, I mean, we heard uh, the other night we heard from our uh, friend Cinephiliac at uh, Slacker Inc., who uh, uh, Cinephiliac liked my recommendation of the David Byrne album, Uh-Oh!, which I think I mentioned when we were covering the uh, John Mulaney David Byrne episode uh, a few months ago. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Cinephiliac said that they really liked... Uh, that uh that episode oh and you know maybe we should also note that this week we unfortunately lost uh somebody great in comedy we we lost mr fred willard yes the great fred willard uh r.i.p like i i i'm 100 percent serious when i say the scene of him in a mighty wind where he's mm-hmm. kind of riffing you know hey what happened that is one of the funniest scenes in cinematic history like every time i watch it i like it's just it's like, my God, I just stay in awe of just how funny that scene is. It's just like yeah. rapid fire jokes, rapid fire jokes. And from what I understand, he made it all up on the spot. And uh, I was like, God, wow, that was fantastic. Yeah, Fred Willard, he was really good at playing these uh, these unaware boobs um, who just had no, <laughs> had no idea of how they were coming off. And you know what? Maybe maybe we should uh, pick a project that had Fred Willard because he was, he was like a regular with the various Christopher Guest Mm. Uh, mockumentary comedies like A Mighty Wind that you mentioned and uh, Best in Show and uh, what was the community theater one? I'm blanking on the Oh, uh, Waiting for Guffman. Waiting for Guffman. I mean, those those are all great and those 
you know, those all featured Fred Willard as, as I recall. So that, that might be fun. And those are, those are just good, goofy fun. So those, those might be what the doctor ordered. I would be down. Yeah. I would be down to see that. And also um, we're recording this on Sunday, but on Saturday night, they played the SNL episode that uh, Fred Willard hosted back in 1978 with musical guest Devo. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was really interesting episode. Yeah, that was interesting. I hadn't really seen much of that episode. I'd, I'd only seen like the Devo musical performance before, but it was it's real interesting to see the original cast when they're really just a few years into it. And it's it's striking how different the show was at the time. They did they did really different styles of sketches and Yeah, but it, but it was interesting to see. Yeah, a lot of those sketches were just kind of like slice of life pieces where they were like small short plays. Like there weren't too many laughs in them, but it was just more about I guess seeing how everyday people you know, act in everyday lives and just trying to find the comedy in the mundane, which I, oh, yeah. that, that was really interesting. Cause like for like a lot of those sketches where there were just no laughs for like the first one or two minute. And then they would hit you with like a laugh little in between, and then it'll end with no laughs really. So it was more like, mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Something else. Yeah. And I, you know, it was also like late seventies was kind of a different age. It, you know, it was like still a pre MTV age. So, so things took their time a lot more. They would do, they didn't really think anything of doing like a eight or a 10 minute sketch or something like that. They were almost like short plays in some ways. Right. Uh, like the thing was like on weekend update, they, they reported on Sid Vicious, uh, killing Nancy Spungen. Uh, you know, if you've heard of Sid and Nancy, that's that's that whole thing. And I was like, oh, this is the week where that happened. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and they made a joke about it. Like, God. No. It's just, that was some edgy stuff, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was something else to see the Devo performing the Rolling Stones' satisfaction. That was, that was the highlight for me. Yeah, dude, I forget, like, because, uh, like, I remember when I discovered Devo, it really kind of opened my mind to, like, because, like, usually when you think of, like, late 70s music, you think of, you know, ABBA, you think of Saturday Night Fever, you think of, like, that disco era, and you forget that, like, pe people were, like, Devo and, you know, Joy yeah. Division and Talking Heads and hip-hop was just getting started. Like, you forget all of that stuff with, like, late 70s, too, because, like, that's more, because, yeah, yeah. like, that new wave stuff is more akin to, like, the 80s stuff. Yeah, punk and new wave and and hip hop was just getting started, and yeah, the early days of rap, and yeah, just a really creatively fertile time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, like the late seventies, I think were were very crummy in many other respects, but but yeah. I think that inspired a lot of great art and a lot of great music. There was that whole summer of Sam thing that wasn't great, but yeah, no, no. summer of Sam thing, yeah. But uh, but music wise, it was pretty dope. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, Studio 54 is around. That's pretty neat. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Get to go uh, go to Studio 54, do cocaine with all your favorite celebrities and stuff, assuming you're, like, you're a sufficiently attractive person. Yeah. And stuff. Put on your platform shoes, do coke with Liza Minnelli. That's how I spell, uh, that's how I spend my Labor Day weekend. <laughs> you know, someday we should do the, uh, the, the, the 54 movie, because it's got Mike Myers in it. We could, we could oh. do that. Very interesting. Be interesting. All right. Yeah. Got a young Ryan Philippe and Salma Hayek, and I think Brecken Meyer was in it too. I think, uh, wasn't Naomi Campbell in that too? Probably. Ooh. Probably. Ooh la la. I, don't, I, don't, 
I don't think I've seen any of the 54 movies since the late 90s when it came out, but uh, might be interesting if we can track that one down. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. All right. Well, we've achieved full McConaughey, so I think it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> and on, the, on, that, on, on that McConaughey note, we'll end it here. Yeah. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Sorry this wasn't uh, our typical sort of show, but hopefully you still got some entertainment value out of it. Um, And we will be back next week with something more fun and goofy. But until then, nerds nerds out. out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop recording so that we stay on and that it uploads all of our audio. So okay, um, is there anything hurtful you want to say about Frank before I stop? Uh, he's a wonderful man, and uh, I love him with all my heart and soul. Okay, I disagree, and I will be taking the counter argument. <laughs> and uh, 